Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. We are going to be talking today about a new book called Wicked Problems, The Ethics of Action for Peace, Rights, and Justice. That's coming out with Oxford University Press this spring. My name is Ernesto Verdeja. I'm an associate professor of peace studies and political science at the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, and also the executive director of the Institute for the Study of Genocide. And my colleagues today, my co-editors on the book, are going to be joining as well. I'm Doug Irvin Erickson. I'm assistant professor at the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution, where I direct the Raphael Lemkin Genocide Prevention Program at the Center for Peacemaking Practice. I'm an Austin Choi Fitzpatrick, and I'm university professor at the University of San Diego's Croc School for Peace Studies. So I'm really excited to be together here today with Doug and Austin to talk about this new book, and we think that you'll be interested in it as well. And I thought maybe we could just start off by talking a little about why this book was even written and what the idea behind it is. Doug, what's your sense of this, since you were really kind of one of the key people in getting this project to come together? Thank you, Ernesto. This has been a really a great project to do with you both and all of our co-authors who are just excellent and exciting people. Wicked problems at their heart are problems in which the causes and consequences of things become so intertwined and so locked into the fabric of a social system that it becomes hard to separate any one cause from any one effect. And thus the projects that are designed to sort of do good things or to do good in the world or solve a little problem here oftentimes have layers and layers of unintended consequences that can oftentimes be sort of embedded within the structure of the conflict itself and efforts to do good can backfire. And then you have to start judging these things. Whose good counts as good? What happens when I do good and it does bad? And wicked problems, therefore, are so complicated and so hard and have no good answers that they pose ethical dilemmas all over the place. So our book is really intended for a wide range of audience. Yes, we wish to have the conversation that the scholars like to have, but we also want to make those conversations accessible to our students in the classroom who are here with us as young people entering into a complicated world, a world that is not clear at all in terms of morality. How do you engage in the world to do good? How do you do this? There's a lot of things that can go wrong in your efforts to do good. How do you think about that? How do you contemplate it? And then we hope that those conversations can also translate into communities of practice, broadly defined. And our goal of this book is to sort of construct a conversation that can really, really be enriching and stimulating, but also provocative and conversation-inducing. Yeah, I love this. The idea is that wicked problems emerge from action, and it creates dilemmas that are dilemmas of action, right? These are things that can't get solved in, in textbooks. So I guess, Ernesto, a question for you, zooming out. What's the book about? That's what wicked problems are. That's sort of how we came to it. But what's the book about? Yeah, that's a great question because the book is actually about a lot of specific types of justice struggles. It was it's one way to look at it. But in fact, by framing it within this concept of wicked problems, it allows us to take a step back and think about how all of these justice struggles are, are they're constituted very often by these ethical dilemmas and these ethical trade-offs. So one way to think of the book, and one of the things I'm most excited about is 
the types of voices and the types of contributors that we've been able to bring in. We've got people who are scholar practitioners, so people who spend part of their time in academia doing deep and sophisticated research, but are also involved in the peacebuilding work. But we also have a variety of different types of activists and educators and full-time practitioners in the human rights and peacebuilding world. And that's really exciting as well. It's actually as an academic, and here I speak for myself as effectively a scholar and, and, and an academic who spends a little bit of time in the practitioner world, but really is a scholar, it's very humbling to speak to people who are 24-7 involved in these types of efforts. And it reminds you that while we may have a little bit of clarity when we approach these things as research questions or as academic puzzles, on the ground, they can be very muddy and they involve all sorts of trade-offs. So these different sets of voices, practitioners, advocates, scholars, peace educators, it brings both richness and nuance to these questions, but it also elicits and invites a new set of answers that we might be able to bring to the table. So that's the way I think about it. Now, obviously, there's a whole bunch of different types of topics. And Austin, you could probably say something about this because you were instrumental in helping us think through the different types of people we could invite and the different types of subjects and topics we could explore. Yeah, I mean, the t- you know, you just were talking about justice struggles and, and the title of the book is Struggles for Peace, Rights and Justice. Or what's the title of this book, Ernesto? You've got it right in front of you. That wasn't a quiz. Wicked Problems, the Ethics of Action for Pete's Rights and Justice. Ernesto's over here not finding it fast enough, so I'm giving it to you. Peace, Rights, and Justice, right? So we're talking about justice struggles, but one of the things, and I teach at a school of peace studies, but I'm interested in social movements, and one of the puzzles to me has always been this question, like, who are the fellow travelers? Like, who else is in, is in my lane? Who else is pulling in the same direction for a better world? And what I really liked about this conversation is it sort of flared out, put into conversation a literature on and activists in struggles for peace, also folks working on nonviolence, also folks working on human rights, also folks working on various justice struggles. And while from the outside, those all look like folks are pulling in the same direction, as I just said, it turns out that academically, we're having separate conversations and we have different conferences and maybe we go to different parties. I don't know. But are we pulling the same direction? Do we, have, do we share the same dilemmas? How does this actually end up working in real life? Sometimes I feel as a social movement scholar, a little too feisty for peace studies. And so what I loved about this book is to work with Doug, to work with Ernesto. We come from different scholarly traditions. We roll with different people and to bring those voices or, or again, organize around really practical struggles into these pages. I just, I really loved that. Maybe it's a good time to talk about what we loved about this book. Doug, what stuff is in this book that got you really excited when you saw it come across the transom? Well, I think what I loved about this book was it it breaks away from so much of the traditional mold of peace studies and conflict resolution fields. Some people see these two fields as being the same. Others say that they're different. And it does it in a way that doesn't get into the weeds of definitions and sort of lose the point in arguing about, is there really a difference between conflict transformation and conflict resolution? I think this is important. And it's something that Ernesto, myself, and you, Austin, we all have our PhDs from non-peace studies places. We come to peace studies as travelers from other, from other spaces and other regions of the intellectual world. And we also have our own moral commitments and social commitments and movements that we've been a part of and that we enjoy being a part of, we think are meaningful. And so what the three of us were attempting to do was see ourselves in peace studies through this book. But in a large way, we took all these people, 17 chapters and far more than 17 authors with a lot of co-authored pieces, and we, we helped people bring themselves into peace studies. 
And I think that was the most magical part of this book. So we had intended the book to sort of start off with the big time scholars of ethics, right? I mean, these are the Irena Neufeldts, the Tim Marithis, Elizabeth Hume, and her co-author Jessica von Parknus-Zuzik, and then Aneshka Pazinska and Susan Hirsch, people who really sort of grounded this field. And we realized that, that uh, the conversation was actually something that was far different. And we, we divided this book then into three sections. We took the heavy hitters and the big scholars of ethics, and we, we concluded the book with them. And we began the book with new voices, people who don't have PhDs, people who are leading movements in the street. And our three sections worked themselves out around one. First is the conversations of violence. Second is dilemmas that emerge within the context of leadership of organizations. And then the third there is about systems and organizations. So the book really becomes a set of three sections that each have their own arguments and dilemmas and authors, if you read between the lines, they're, they're kind of disagreeing with each other. They're getting into that question of who says we have to do it this way. And then taken as a whole, the book really becomes a rich and deep conversation that does away with these things, such as there should be a divide between the global and the, and the local, that the national and the international are two different things. No, 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 no. They're embedded within each other because wicked problems are by definition complex systems. But it also does away with false binaries between theory and practice. And I think that's the most magical part of this book. Yeah, that's actually, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that really struck me when I was working on the book with y'all and with our contributors was the ways in which, in a certain sense, at a structural level, some of the wicked problems are somewhat similar, right? You have a number of people who are committed to promoting peace and justice. And nevertheless, there are all sorts of trade-offs around ethical objectives and ethical aims that one is pursuing. And how do you balance these trade-offs when you don't have enough information to know what the consequences are going to be? It's hard to do counterfactuals. You don't know what the time horizon is. And nevertheless, you sometimes have to negotiate and work with people whom you might otherwise find somewhat objectionable, but that's the only way to bring about, about the outcome. Now, framing it that way, of course, seems a little bit vague. So I thought maybe this is a nice place to talk a little bit about what the content of some of the, the sections are and, and some of the chapters that really stood out for me. And I have to say, this has been such a pleasure because really I learned something significant from all of the chapters. Even if I didn't always agree with all of the positions, it really kind of helped generate a fascinating and provocative debate. But generally speaking, you know, this is a book that covers everything from activism on the streets and social movement mobilization to thinking about conflict and violence prevention and resolution at the international and global levels, but also how it kind of affects the local levels. There's work on looking at human rights advocacy and transitional justice, peace education and pedagogy. So there's all these different debates and questions that are brought in. And for me, as several chapters kind of stood out, for instance, looking at the first section on violence, we have a whole set of contributions around when, if ever, is violence appropriate and who can employ violence for bringing about justice efforts. I found particularly provocative the chapter by Liz Theo Harris and Noam Sandwes back, which is a piece thinking about how systemic change requires a commitment to nonviolence, but it also requires a commitment to excavating and focusing on the root causes of violence. So it's not just about mobilization or focusing on the surface of disagreement, but really looking at the place of poverty and the way the state has to be confronted directly. So it's a very muscular type of nonviolence. There's also a bunch of other really interesting chapters. Cursa Klein-Reichman talks, for instance, about the trade-offs between using violence and nonviolence under conditions of social movement activism. We have a really interesting piece on mobilizations by Dan Myers, where he talks about what it means to be an ally 
to social movement activists when you aren't necessarily one of the people directly affected by the injustices that that group is suffering from. But nevertheless, you can play an important role. But there are all sorts of trade-offs here, because really, what does it mean to have an authentic voice? What does it mean to step in? That chapter, I think, is really provocative, at least for me. And I'd be curious to see what you guys think. But it's provocative for me because it brings up a broader set of debates in the book, which is this exploration of intersectional justice struggles. And I was really excited by the book because we have all these voices coming in from people who are advocates for intersectional justice types of struggles. They're at the front lines of this. They're directly affected by it. And nevertheless, they're teasing out these really nuanced efforts at trying to kind of change the way things are. So those are some of the things that kind of struck me. Austin, I suspect you have your own thoughts about some of this as well. Yeah, you know, Doug, Doug had said this thing earlier that we started out with this idea that it was going to be, book's going to be one thing, then you start to hear the voices that are coming through in the essays. And, you know, these are like tight 4,000 word essays. We ask people to be problem centric, writing in the first person, sort of like anchored in their experience. And Doug's right. When we started getting these things in, we start reviewing these and you get people like Alicia Sanchez Gill, who's like coordinating activists at the grassroots to write short, snappy essays about intersectional justice struggles, as you just said, or not. Stuff. Then you realize like, oh, our framework for what sort of like a practical ethics looks like and what this volume needs to look like needs to expand, right? So I, I think I'm echoing something you'd said just a second ago, Ernesto, about, you know, Liz and Noam's chapter about, about nonviolence. This follows its chapter from Tony Gascu saying like, what about self-defense? What about armed self-defense? What do we do about that? That's a rich question. That's a tough question. And again, not all the chapters agree with each other because this isn't like we're not all rowing in the same boat in the same direction. We've got these different sort of understandings, different experiences, and maybe we have we share the same objectives. That's one of the book's dilemmas, I guess, now that I'm thinking about it. Min Dang, a colleague of mine at the Wrights Lab at the University of Nottingham, she's the founding director of the UK-based anti-trafficking network called Survivors Alliance. She's like writing from this like survivor leader perspective, asking how do we build justice movements? with survivors that have economic and political needs and demands, how do we do that while resisting dehumanization, penalization, tokenization? And how do we do that while trying to work with like the public, with the media? I don't know who can write that essay other, other than Dr. Day. It's amazing that this is the sort of stuff that's in this book. And so I got really excited when I started seeing those things come in, people writing from lived experience about actual struggles in the real world and asking questions that I don't have the answers to. I'll be honest. I mean, this is, you know, start reading, you get to the end of this and I don't go by this book, right? But you get to the end of this and you're like, wow, these are struggles that people find in the middle of their own lives as they're at the grassroots, at the tip of the spear. You pick your violent or nonviolent metaphor. And this is what's going on. Just I'll finish with one more. Ashley Bower's chapter is a great chapter on how movements can move beyond simple revolution and reform binaries. And she has ideas. She has suggestions. It's not you get to the end of it and like, oh no, what are we going to do? She says, you know, there's there's things we that movements can do in order to find their way forward despite these paradoxes and these dilemmas. I could go on for like five more minutes. I'm being waved yeah. at. Stop talking. Let me, let me stop talking. Well, let me ask you something. This is actually for both of you, right? This is kind of related to the book. So Austin, you mentioned this issue of how the book approaches these questions, not with an overarching theoretical framework that says, this is the ethical dilemma in this area, but rather it's one of looking about how ethical dilemmas are constructed and thought through and, and responded to in all these different types of contexts. And you've talked a bit about that. Here's a question for both of you, because this is something that we actually worked through quite a bit. So the first section of the book talks about violence, and we make a point about distinguishing between violence and conflict. I'd be curious if you could say something about the distinction between the two 
and what the role of conflict is in peace building. Maybe, you know, Doug, I know you've thought about this quite a bit, so maybe we can start there because it's one of the things that I think that makes the book a little bit different from traditional ethical approaches to peace building. This is a very important question because it strikes to the heart of what we're getting at in the book, which is that conflict avoidance is a really, really bad method of doing social justice work. And we don't say it like that. Instead, we say conflict is sometimes necessary for peace, which is to say that oftentimes you're in a situation where we could be like Martin Luther King Jr.'s, this, is, this comes out of his work that we found was so important, which is that sometimes conflict is necessary for laying bare the contradictions of society and for creating awareness around injustice and to mobilizing people towards justice. But also sometimes you need to wage conflict in order to get the kind of peace you want because there's invested interest and there's establishments in place that, that, that have an interest and a desire and a willingness to keep things the same. And so that becomes, that became an important framing for our book, which is picked up in so many different chapters. That conflict is actually necessary and I think that's important because a lot of times we can think of conflict as a bad thing. We want, to, we want to manage conflict. We want to prevent conflict. Let's not have a conflict. Oh, wait, let's end this conflict. And I think that's, that's really, this book really helps us to see that actually conflicts don't end. They transform into something new. They change. They go on. They become different things. And in the process, people can engage within conflict in a way that's actually productive and leads to healthier, happier, better, more secure, more just societies. Yeah, I'm so I'm so excited to hear you say that because I've you know spent the last few years at a school of peace studies as a social movement scholar. The whole thing I'm interested in is people power and people mobilizing for change and in the teeth of established interests that don't want to give them those things. You know, power concedes nothing without demand. Oh, that's my like I'm baked in that stuff. So then you show up at a school of peace studies, and the simplistic view of peace studies, I think, is that it has some sort of kumbaya means and ends. And so what I love about this project is putting into conversation folks who share ends, but maybe disagree about means. And so then we, you know, is, is conflict necessary? Is conflict actually like a required part of the peace builders toolkit? I don't know, like that's a dilemma that I think, you, you know, you get into the literature and people are talking about, but superficially, that's not the way we think of how we get a more just and peaceful world. And so that's, I'm just, I'm just saying the same thing you just said, Doug. Well, let me, let me spin this off into an example that maybe can lead back to Ernesto piecing this together that creates some sort of meaning in our conversation for this podcast, which is, you know, I assigned Tony Gaskew's chapter in this book to my class. I've done this, you know, since Tony submitted his chapter, I've been sharing his draft with, with my students. And, you know, in one particular class, they had a big argument about whether he's a conservative or a progressive. And it was really fun because that question freaked out half the class for different reasons. And what emerged after that conversation was, well, wait a second, Tony's not saying that the ethical dilemma is about using armed self-defense in the context of Black resistance against white supremacy in the Black radical tradition. He, that, that's not an ethical dilemma for him. The ethical dilemma is for people who are themselves on the side of white supremacy, either explicitly or implicitly, or they're benefiting from it. The ethical dilemma is for white liberals, right? When are you going to take a side in this? When are you going to push beyond neutrality? And that's the part that is, is so wonderful because if you, if you reframe the, these very basic dilemmas that the field of conflict resolution and peace building is doing, and you just shift it a little bit. And, and all of a sudden you get these wildly different outputs. And then all of a sudden the conversation about whether Tony is conservative or progressive, that's a pointless conversation. 
because he's trying to construct something brand new. It's the whole point of his chapter. And then that then launches into this whole other debates that emerge. And that's, if I can do another shameless plug for the book, what we as editors did a good job of is allowing the authors to speak short 4,000 word first person essays direct to the reader that let us create conversations between chapters. And we end up with a book that is affordable, assignable, but also fun to read. If we're doing the podcast, I think we get to plug the book, right, Ernesto? I think we can plug the book. Yeah, that's true. They are 4,000 word essays and they're meant to be read widely by wide audience, even though they're underpinned by obviously contemporary research and scholarship, among other things. One of the things that strikes me what you were just saying, though, Doug, about this is there are a number of kind of themes or issues that come out throughout the book, regardless of the specific topic, whether it's transitional justice internationally in Africa, for instance, or whether it's about racial justice movements in the United States or atrocity prevention and sanctions at the UN, whatever it happens to be, we see consistently that there are a number of themes and issues that emerge. And it's one of the things that really struck me as I was reading through the original set of contributions. One is the centrality of conflict. So we've talked about that a bit drawing a distinction between conflict and violence, obviously, but that conflict has a generative force for justice. And you find this even in nonviolent social justice movements, historically, and in the present. So one is kind of the place of conflict, how to make sense of it, how to try to work with it, but also the dangers of how conflict can, you know, one can lose control over it, and it can be deeply problematic. A second theme, of course, is Collapsing a little about a little bit this distinction between the global and the local, or the global as we sometimes talk about it, or in peace building, we emphasize a lot, or in peace studies, I should say, we emphasize a lot the, the local turn, so to speak. And what we see, in fact, is that all of these justice struggles and specifically all of these ethical dilemmas, they resonate at different registers simultaneously. They have to do with local politics and local dynamics, they also have to do with international issues, they have to do with big picture stuff around structural injustice, but also the immediate problem of armed violence or armed conflict or bodily harm in your community. So they resonate at all these different levels. And rather than making things muddy, it actually shows us how there's multiple levels here. And if we want to take peace building seriously, as a peace builder, one has to think through to the best ability possible how these things resonate and how we can try to build peace building strategies that actually reinforce one another rather than only working in a piecemeal fashion. And then kind of the last thing I'll probably note here is the way that what we really find is a lot of linkages between what are sometimes disparate, considered to be disparate fields. There's a lot of normative linkages here between either transitional justice and human rights and racial justice movements or whatever, but also across disciplines. So we have all these different things kind of working um, in different ways. I wonder if maybe as we think about kind of the consequences of a book like this or how it fits in existing discussions and existing debates, if y'all might be able to reflect a little bit on what you see the big implications for our field being for this type of exercise. And when I say this exercise, I mean, not only specifically the book itself, but the types of contributions and lessons it's trying to contribute. For me, and I sort of presage this with something I said earlier, but I feel like this is a maybe a fresh direction for, for peace studies writ large or as part of a larger set of trends of, of, of newer thinking about where peace studies is is going as a field. I, I'm not a peace studies scholar, although the people tell me I am, I, I guess because I teach in the School of Peace Studies, but I feel like there's this huge shot of energy after the 60s that is now sunsetting. And the question is, what's the future look like for peace studies? And this is why I'm, I think a clear argument in my mind is that there's a role for contention. There is a role for generative, productive, peaceward 
conflict. This this point that Doug was making earlier. And so implications from my field in social movements is that there might be fellow travelers in the peace building world that we hadn't identified previously. And there might be links and overlaps from within these movements that hadn't been identified again within these movements. You look from the outside and everybody looks pretty much the same. Everybody's at a protest together. I get that. But in fact, I think that there is some heterogeneity there that our book is trying to pull together in an attempt to build common ground. Starting from the practical, not the abstract, not the philosophical, uh, not the theoretical, but starting from the practical. And so that's where I think some implications are. I think that there's uh, bringing together communities that that maybe haven't been talking previously. I don't know, Doug, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that's a good argument for why you are a peace studies person, whether or not you want to admit it. But that sounds to me like all the kinds of things we talk about when we're talking about bringing people together for goals larger than themselves or creation of inclusive communities. I do feel that a big part of this book really is, you know, for us as, as editors, this was also about trying to figure our identity as peace scholars, where do we fit in? We have lots of other identities and, and connections that, that go in different ways. I think for us, you know, my, my experience of editing this book, the two of you, was very much how do we construct a conversation that normally wouldn't be constructed in this field that we teach in and reflected in the journals that you know, we're supposed to be writing and supposed to be having our graduate students read. And I think that's something that I really feel most proud about, that we really get a diverse and wide conversation going and step back and let those voices speak and let the world judge the book for what it is. Thanks, Doug. And let me just wrap up here by saying it's been such a pleasure working with you two on this book, but especially a pleasure to work with the contributors who produce just phenomenal, outstanding chapters. And a huge thank you to all of you who are listening. If you're interested in learning more about Wicked Problems, the Ethics of Action for Peace, Rights, and Justice, visit go.nd.edu slash wickedproblemspod for more information about the book and to purchase a copy for yourself. The book is also available to purchase anywhere else books are sold. You've been listening to The Croc Cast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of The Crotcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from The Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.